turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 4, Gospel of John chapter 4. Um, and I want to mention that right after we're finished with this service, I'm going to be right down the hall here on the left. Uh, we have what's called an after party. About once uh, a month, we make opportunity for you to come down there because that's where I'm going to be. And I want to, I, I want to keep connections open with you. And some of us, we don't get a chance to sit and talk very, very often. But I'm going to be down there. And if you want to communicate something with me, or you think that I would like to get to know you a little better, because I would, that's where I'm going to be, right down there with refreshments and coffee as soon as we're finished in here. Okay, John chapter 4. We're in this series, before I read this, we're in this series where we're looking at the first half of the Gospel of John. We're looking at seven miracles that Jesus did. And they're sometimes called, the, the, the first half of the Gospel of John is sometimes called the book of signs because of these seven miracles that are all called signs in the, in the uh, text. So a sign is something pointing somewhere. And these seven signs reveal seven different aspects of the Messiah, of the character of Jesus Christ as he relates in our lives. So this last week we looked at the first sign, which was uh, turning the water into wine. This morning we're going to look at the second sign. And uh, just so you know, I'm not pulling the rabbit out of a hat. We're, let's look at the last verse first, verse 54. It says, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Everybody say second sign. second sign. Which is a little bit concerning because over here in chapter 2, right after the first sign, it tells us in verse 23, if I can get these thin pages to turn, verse 23 of chapter 2, now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs, plural, he was performing and believed in his name. Now, many signs happening before the second sign don't quite add up. What's, what's the deal here? Well, it's obvious the second sign, the second miracle we're reading about here in John chapter 4 has some special connection with the first miracle, but not necessarily a connection with the many miracles that happen in between. In other words, we're talking about specific signs that he gave to us. Okay? Let me, uh, before, before we get into reading the first portion, and then I want to break it down, I, I want to share, there, there are seven similarities between the first miracle, the turning the water into wine, and the second miracle that we're about to read. There are seven of these. Uh, number one, they both happened on the third day. That's interesting connection. Number two, in both stories, Jesus gave them a rebuke right after they asked their question. Number three, to get the miracle, they had to obey. There had to be some obedience that was required in both stories. Number four, the Lord did nothing but speak. Didn't lay hands on anything, didn't do anything weird like spitting in the, in the clay and making mud and putting it on somebody's eyes. Didn't do any of that. Number five, the servants. The servants, you know, they're usually the people sitting in the back corner. The servants knew something nobody else knew. 
It was the servants who became central in the miracle that took place. Number six, the result was somebody believed. Somebody believed. And number seven comparison, both had a designated conclusion. The first miracle, it said this was the first sign that he did. And at the end of this story, as we just read, it says this is the second sign that he performed. So I want us to see there's a clear pattern between these two stories, the first miracle and the second miracle, even though it really wasn't the second miracle. He had done others along the way. So that said, let's uh, pick up our story. There, there's four key thoughts I want us to see from this. And the first one is found in verses 46 and 47, where it says, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So there's the scenario laid out. This is, this is the, uh, the platform from which the miracle was performed, and that is the word trouble. You write that down if you want to. Trouble, that's number one. That's the first part of our story. One thing we've all learned in life, except for maybe a couple babies, is trouble is the way of the world. So here we see uh, the, first, the first two words are once more. Once more he went back to Cana of Galilee. Once more. Sometimes you have to go back where you started. Sometimes you have to go back to home base. Sometimes you got to go back to square one and you don't get to collect $200. Just a fresh start. You just got to go back to where you wandered off. Sometimes I have to ask myself, okay, I obviously took a wrong turn here. Where did I take that wrong turn? I need to get back to where I know I was on the right path. Get back to that point, and then you're in the right direction. So this, uh, this nobleman comes to him, or a certain royal official. The word certain <clears throat> is put here in the translation because it's talking about a specific Roman official, not just a Roman official. It's like the story is about this guy. It's like he's, it's an individualized story about this particular royal official, not just any royal official. God is a, he specializes in individual relationships. Did you know that? This is important to know. You have an individual relationship with God, and He knows every secret of your life. He knows your past as well as He does your future. You and I are just trying to get over our past and figure out our future, but He's got it all figured out. He knows this. And He's an individual God. And every one of us, and the people in the church down the street, and the people in the church in Indonesia, He has a personal relationship with each of those individuals. And he doesn't get us mixed up. I would get us mixed up. I would get confused. But he doesn't do that because he's God. It's important we understand that. So a royal official, what's a royal official? 
a royal official. Royal means uh, part of the, uh, the, the government, not the Roman government. This guy is a royal official connected to Israel. He's an upper, upper class aristocrat, aristocratic Jew. That's what he is. You know, it's hard for us to understand because we live in America. And here in America, you can be born into abject poverty and work your way out of it. You can get an education. You can change the patterns. You can start fresh. You can be different than what you were born into. But back in those days, you pretty much were, you spent your life in the whatever state you were born. If you were born into nobility, then you got the good jobs. If you were born into poverty as a peasant, nobody would hire you except people who didn't make much money. So you stayed in the lower class. This was one of the upper class people. This is a big shot. He's a, he, he's, he's a royal official. Official means he's been granted some kind of powers. Like in, in, our, in our country, we have governmental officials. We call them officers, officers of the court, officers of the law, officers of the military. They're given approval and authority to go and represent the government. So he was a certain royal official who came to see Jesus. He came from Capernaum. If you did some, if you, you have one of those study Bibles and you look in the back and you find a map and you can find Cana and Capernaum, they're about 26 miles apart. 26 miles. How important would something have to be to you to travel 26 miles on foot, not in your car? How long would it take you to walk 26 miles? I think you'd be pretty well whooped by the time you got there. You wouldn't do that casually. You would have to have some driving motivation behind you to make you want to walk 26 miles, especially while your son is just about to die. I mean, if your son's about to die, wouldn't you want to stay around with your family? Wouldn't you want to be there? Wouldn't you want to hang on to the end? He walks the other way, 26 miles to come to Jesus. There's something motivating him. Something is moving him to do this. Probably a last resort. Most probably a royal official would have spent a small fortune back home on every doctor, on every uh, uh, scientist, anybody that knew anything to come and help his son because his son's about to die. And he's in a panic to help his son. But it says, when he heard, I love that phrase, when he heard that Jesus was in Cana, he walked that 26 miles. He went that far because he heard. Now, I wonder what he heard. I wonder what people were saying. I wonder what the scuttlebutt was, what the rumors were that were circulating around. And I wonder who started them. Because somebody had said something that got back to the nobleman that let gave him some kind of hope beyond what he had. Somebody had to tell their story. I wonder what that relates to in our culture. I think it says somebody, somebody needs to tell her story. 
Some of us need to be speaking up. Some of us need to be talking about it. If somebody's, if somebody's got to gossip, let's give them something to gossip about. Let's tell them our story and let them go gossip about our story. Because somebody out there hasn't heard that needs to hear. And how are they going to hear if we all only talk about it in church with our Christian friends? We got to get the word up. This is what compassion is. The whole message about this second miracle is that Jesus is a man of compassion. He cares. We've got to care. We've got to get outside of our comfort zone. At the top of your outline is the definition of compassion. It's to see the pain in someone else and have the desire to do something about it. That's compassion. So it, it says his son was close to death. I mean, close to it. Have you ever been close to death? I don't think I, I have ever been in a place where I could say I was close to death couple of times I kind of wished I could have died, but I don't think I've ever felt like I was close to death. Now, I've been close to death. I've watched it with several other people, watched it with my mother and my father and many others over the years. So I, I understand what death is. It's something you want to fight for with everything you've got, but it's something we believers can embrace, not be afraid of. His son was close to death. He's a Jew under the Jewish system, and he's in a panic to rescue his son. So he walks 26 dusty miles to get over to where Jesus is because that's his only hope at this point. You know, I've, I've learned by watching Christians and non-Christians over the years of my ministry, I've learned that trouble either draws people to Christ or repels them away from Christ. Either people blame God for the trouble and run away from God, mad at Him, disillusioned, or they say, I, I need God in this crisis more than anything, and they run to Him. Isn't that your story? Don't we all have a story of either running away from, from Christ or running to Him because of trouble? In my life, I remember both. I, I remember running, a, running away from God because of trouble. And when more trouble came, I turned and ran back to him. I had to learn the hard way. Anybody else had to learn the hard way? Okay, a few of us. rest of us still learning. He came to Jesus and it says he begged him. He begged him. Come down and heal my son. He's begging him. I, I think there's a, a biblical word for begging something from the Lord. Prayer, that's it. That's what, the, that's what prayer is. It's coming to God. It's begging God to intervene in our affairs. We have done everything we can do, and there's nothing more we can do. What are we going to do now? So we call on God. That's called prayer, begging him to intervene, come and change. So he, he comes to the Lord, and he asks him to come because of his trouble. A couple key verses in the Old Testament I want us to look at because it refers to our trouble. And if, if you've got some trouble going on in your life, apply these two verses to your life. The first is in Psalm 34, verse 6. It says, this poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. 
Now, the psalmist isn't writing about some other poor guy. This is his testimony. This is his own story. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He, the Lord, saved this poor man out of his troubles. It's his testimony. It's his cry out to God. He's telling the story of what the Lord's done for him. You and I need to have some kind of a story like that. This poor man, this poor woman, this young, young boy, this young girl, this one, me, I called, and the Lord delivered me from my trouble. The other one is in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, the Lord is good. Everybody say that with me. The Lord is good. Say it again. The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. There's a condition to this promise. You have to trust him. So this nobleman comes and he says, come down and heal my son. There's really two parts of that request. Part number one, come down to Capernaum. Come to my house. That's where my son is about to die. Part two, heal my son. Which of those two do you think is most important? But the nobleman thinks coming down to his house is the one that's most important. He's like us. We sometimes, we're trying to tell God how to do it instead of just telling God what our need is Amen. and letting God figure it out. Because I guarantee you, his method's not going to be like yours. So the more you focus on the method, what you want him to do for you, the harder it is for God to move when you trust him. Submit to him and let God do it in some strange, unpredicted way. Then you know it's God. Okay, so that's the first part of our story, trouble. I want us to go to the second part of our story in verses 48 and 49. Jesus replies, Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir! come down before my child dies. Interesting little ex exchange if you paid attention to what's, what's happening here. The second word is the testing. Jesus was testing him. He was testing him. In the first miracle, it was Mother Mary who ignored the Lord. In this miracle... It's the nobleman who ignored the Lord. He said, Lord, come down now before my son dies. He just expressed where his faith was. My son is about to die. And the only hope is for you to come to my house. For you to come down. That's the only hope. Jesus is carrying on this conversation because he wants the nobleman to express himself. It was a test to see what was really in his heart. It was a test. I thought it was interesting that, that Jesus says to the nobleman, you people, you people. Now, when I don't like it when somebody wants to stereotype me. I've had people say sometimes, I, I know that you're a religious man. 
first thing I want to say is, no, 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 no. I'm not religious. I'm a Christian. There's a vast difference. Don't call me religious. I don't want to be religious. I want to have a relationship with God. Don't stereotype me with other people. But Jesus just did it. You people, unless you people see a miracle, you won't believe. Now, on the one hand, it could be he's rebuking the nobleman. On the other hand, maybe Jesus is just making a statement of human nature. Unless you people see a miracle, you won't believe. You have to see some kind of sign. You have to see some kind of big thing that shakes things up before you'll believe. And I think, isn't that the way we kind of are? Unless God proves himself to us some way or another, we're really not very big believers. We need something to grab a hold of our lives and shake us up. So he says the second time, come down. Jesus is testing him. What's really important here? Your son being healed or me coming to your house? Well, you see, this nobleman's probably got quite a house. He's probably got a serving staff. He's probably got a groundskeeper. He's probably got all kinds of employees working with him. He's a big shot. Nobody would say, I'm not coming to your house, Mr. Nobleman. Everybody would be honored by being invited to come to Mr. Big Shot's house. And Jesus wants to know what's important, me coming to your house or your son being healed? And how did the man respond? Come down before my son dies. Didn't say anything about healing. Just wanted him to come to his house. I think he's flunking the test. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So how do you test the spirits? How do you do that? I think Jesus just did it right here by, ask, by, by having a conversation. I've, I've kind of learned when somebody comes and asks me to pray for a situation, I often ask some follow-up questions. What does the doctor say? How do you feel about that? And what's the next step? I ask questions like that because in the conversation, people reveal where their faith is, what they're really asking God to do in their life. So sometimes having that conversation exposes what you really need to know in the situation. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's testing the spirits with this nobleman to find out, is he a man of faith or is it a trap? What is it? Why, why do you want me to go? But his response is, come down. Come down. This is important. Unless you people see signs and wonders... And the nobleman basically says, I don't want to talk about theology. I don't want to talk about anything to do with religion. I'm concerned about my son. And the only thing to resolve my son's issue is if you come to my house. Come into the house. We all probably have somebody in mind whose house 
we really would not rather go to. There's just something about that atmosphere, something about the people there. We don't want to go to that house. And Jesus did not want to go to this guy's house. And he didn't have to go because we get to the third part of the story, which is in verses 50 and 51. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with news that his boy was living. While he was still on the way, he hadn't even got home yet. And the servants were coming the other way to give him the good news that his son was living. This is the third part of the story. It's the trusting. It's the trusting. We got to go through the testing. But the purpose of the testing is to bring us to the place of trusting. That we trust in what he says. Jesus said, your son will live. How did he know that? He's 26 miles away. How does Jesus know his son is going to live? I don't know. But that's why I want to hang on to Jesus. Because he does. He knows. I don't know how he knows, but he knows. So I'm going to lean on him. In uh, Psalm 112, verses 6 and 7, it says this about trusting. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. I love that. This is the righteous person. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Righteous men and women are not afraid of bad news. Righteous people who trust in God don't have to be afraid to go to the doctor for a checkup. We don't have to be afraid of a job interview. We do not have to be afraid of the next door opening up. We don't have to be afraid of, the, of what bill is going to come in the mail. Righteous people know God's watching out for us. Amen. So peace just follows us because we trust. Because we trust him. He knows what's in that mailbox before you do. He knows if there's a problem with your physical body before we do. Before the doc does. So it says why he was trusting. So he's begging the Lord, come down, come down. And Jesus says, go. And the man turned around and went back. Something had changed inside this guy. No longer is he adamant that Jesus come to his house. He accepts the fact that he's not going to come, but that his son's going to live. And that's what he really wanted. That's really the, 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 the crisis. So he turns and he starts walking back home. And while he was still on the way, good news came to meet him. This is a walk of faith. This is, this, is, this is the way it should be with Christian lives. We should be keep walking step by step, day by day, down the path he set before us and expect the answer to meet us on the way. In other words, we can't sit still and wait for the answer to come. we got to get up and move out. And in the process of getting up and moving out, as if the answer's coming, the answer comes. The answer meets us while we're moving. Jesus met his real need, healing his son, not his perceived need that Jesus comes to the big shot's house. 
the man headed off believing the word that his son was going to live. What you and I need to do, we need to find a promise. We need to grab a hold of a promise the Lord's given us. That's why we don't, we don't take our Bibles home and put it in a prominent place like on the coffee table. We put it in a prominent place like in our hearts. We have to read it. We have to let it digest. We have to get it down in our souls. Then it changes us. This is the only recorded reference of any Jewish nobleman believing. The only time. But it's recorded here as one of the second signs because Jesus had compassion on Mr. Big Shot. Had compassion on him. When he had every right to say, I'm not going to your house. I'm here for the, for the lost sheep of Israel. But he didn't. He had compassion on Mr. Big Shot as well. You know, it doesn't make any difference whether you were born poor and raised poor or not. It doesn't matter. You can be one of the wealthiest people in DeKalb County and you're still going to have trouble knocking on your door. Everybody, without exception, has trouble knocking on our door. And Jesus responds to trouble. So, let's look at the, the final part of our story. We'll wrap it up. Verses 52 and 53. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. So he and his whole household believed. This, this is what we call a coincidence. Where this incident and that incident line up, come into harmony, come together. This is what God does. The language of the Spirit is coincidence. When you see a coincidence, you understand God was involved, that he lined these things up, that he brought these two paths together. Timing is the last word, number four, timing. It's crucial that we understand the miracle has to do with the timing. It's the timing that everything fell together. Timing is everything in the kingdom of God. You can pray, pray, pray all you want, but if you don't get to where the answer is, if God doesn't lead you and you don't respond to being where you need to be at the right time, the right place at the right time, you miss your miracle. God sets up doors of opportunity for there to be breakthroughs, for there to be miracles. He sets them up. But if I don't move out, if I don't act like I believe it, I'm not going to be where I need to be when the answer comes. This is what we're learning here. Did you know coincidence is a Bible term? Not really a Bible term, it's a concept. Here's the, here's the story. And I know a lot of people th think uh, that miracles aren't really coincidences. It's, coincidence is chance. But God works things out. The story of the Good Samaritan says there was this man traveling down the road who jumped by a bunch of robbers. They beat him up. They stripped him naked, robbed him of everything, left him half dead, and disappeared. And the Bible says, by chance, 
by chance. The NIV says it happened, but the New King James and the New American Standard both say by chance a priest came by. Coincidence. And he did nothing. He had his open door. He blew it. He passed right on by. Then a Levite came by and saw him. Same context, by chance. And Levite did nothing. But then the good Samaritan came along and saw him and got down where he was and helped him up out of there. That's the story of the good Samaritan. All three are in the context of it was by chance. All three had a chance to, to do something awesome for God and receive a blessing in return, but only one of them did it. I wonder if one out of three are the odds of a Christian actually stepping in, stepping through the open door God sets before them. I don't know. Might, be, might not be that good. By coincidence, God arranging situations, pulling them together. And notice that the answer... The solution was dispatched before the guy who was doing the praying ever knew it. He's on his way home when the answer meets him in the road. In Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, there's a story of Daniel praying. He entered into a fast, 21-day fast. He prayed and interceded on behalf of uh, the nation of Israel. He was seeking God on behalf of the nation. And finally the angel came to give him the good news that God had heard the prayer and God was doing something great. And the angel said, you know, the first day you prayed, God sent the answer. But for 21 days now, there's been this war going on in the heavenlies trying to keep the answer from getting through. Finally, the angel showed up 21 days later. I think we need to remember that story. That's for us to understand that when I pray on day one, God sends an answer. But there are spiritual forces that want to hinder that answer coming through. So I don't dare stop my praying and my fasting until the breakthrough comes. So I got to keep it up. I got to keep it up. There's a spiritual battle going on and I don't feel the spiritual battle, but it is going on. And finally the answer comes. And the result was the nobleman believed. And what was his belief based on? First, it was trust because Jesus just told him to go. And then it was based on the sign. The sign that his servants came to tell him. He knew he could trust his servants. The servants came to give him the good news. Your son's fever broke. When did it break? One o'clock in the afternoon. Hey, that's exactly when Jesus told me to go, that my son would live. He puts the two pieces together, and it becomes a sign to him. And he became a believer. So the miracle was not so much his son was raised to health, as it was the nobleman changed his mind. The nobleman was transformed. Everything changed inside the nobleman's mind and therefore his life. Now the nobleman became a believer because he saw the sign. But I wonder why, because it says he believed and his household. I wonder why his wife believed. I wonder why his kids believed. Why did his servants believe? 
household would include the dog and the cat and everything. Everybody around, everybody that pertains to his household, everybody stepped into that awareness. I wonder why they stepped in. They hadn't seen it. I think it's because the nobleman knew how to lead his family. Knew how to take his wife by the hand and say, listen, honey, this, this, this is what's happened. This is, this, God is involved in our family and we've got to embrace this. Sat the kids down and said, this is the way it's going to be. This is the way we live in our house. Since the servants represent him, sat his servants down and say, as a household, we're going to do this. I don't think we have enough men in our culture who say, this is the way we're going to do it in our family. Or maybe we have too many men doing it that way, pointing the wrong direction. I think we need some more men to have encounters with God that change their, their, the way they think so that they can redirect the way the family thinks. This is, this is the first of five cases of household salvation where one person had an experience and they went back home and the whole household was converted. Leaders who influenced their family. God make us like that. So back to the, back to the main point. I want to kind of wrap this up because I'm, I'm a minute over time already. I want to kind of wrap this up. Compassion. Jesus had compassion on a guy he really didn't need to take compassion on. Have you ever had compassion on somebody that you would, that just weren't like you? You didn't really want to connect with them, but you had to have that compassion, that desire to alleviate their pain. Years ago, when, uh, when we were in the little building down here on Washington Street, uh, we were kind of landlocked. And there's kind of an unwritten rule uh, in, in the church world um, because you don't want to be landlocked someday. If a neighboring property comes up for sale, you buy it if you can. Uh, so you got this ability to expand. And uh, we were kind of landlocked. And there was a house next door. And I had this, I had this idea we did in their church that maybe, maybe we could uh, take that house down someday and turn it into some parking, expand our parking. So I knew to do that, I had to find favor with the people that lived next door. It was an elderly lady and, and her, uh, uh, how do I say this, irresponsible adult son who lived there, who would rant and rave at his mom, who rant and raved right back, and it was chaos in the house. But I would go over from time to time, and I would chat with them, try to befriend them, because I knew uh, one of these days you won't be around, uh, Mrs. Neighbor, and we might be interested in this house. So I, I went to the house, and I would chat with her at the door a couple times, check on her, make sure she was okay. And one time she invited me in. Now, back, back in those days, I, I kind of wore a tie every day to the office. That was the culture of the time, and, and a sports jacket. And I, I came in. I was dressed up pretty good. Uh, and I walked, walked into the living room, first time I'd been in the house, and I kind of looked around, and the floor had this linoleum on it, old linoleum. It was worn, or a couple places where it was worn through. And I remember this one spot, I kind of looked down, and through the side window, I could see the reflection. There's a yellow puddle in the middle of that linoleum floor. And about that time, her dog came running in. It was about the size of a boxer, short-haired thing. Came over right into that yellow puddle and danced around in it. 
And the lady says, oh, Brownie, shake hands with the preacher, Brownie. <laughs> what do you think I did? I shook hands with Brownie. <laughs> and as soon as I got out of there, I went home or went to the, back to the church and washed my hands because Brownie was all wet, prancing in her puddle. Why did I do that? Why did I humble myself like that? Because I had compassion on the lady. Sometimes you have to go where you'd really rather not go. You have to talk to people you'd really rather not talk to. You have to deal with things you'd really rather not deal with. But that's compassion. That's what Jesus did. He didn't go to the man's house, but in Matthew chapter 8, there's another story about a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who came to him and he said, would you please heal my servant? And Jesus said, do you want me to come? He's a Gentile. A Jew can't go into the home of a Gentile, but he says, do you want me to come? And the Roman centurion says, oh, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to come to my home because I understand authority. Because I'm an officer in the Roman army, I give people under me orders and they do what I tell them. Because I am under authority to people higher up than I am. I understand this authority thing. You don't need to come to my home, just say the word. Jesus shook his head and he said, I haven't seen that kind of faith in Israel. Speaking to a Roman. So in one case, he doesn't go to the man's home. In the other case, he does. And in both cases, somebody gets healed and somebody believes. So who's the Lord speaking to you about that you need to have compassion for? It's that person that, you, that really grates at you most probably. That's where compassion is needed. And Jesus went after the people like us who kind of grate him the wrong way. And the rest is history. Isn't God's grace amazing? Let's stand together. Think about compassion. Think about how it applies to you. And what does God want you to do with it? Heavenly Father, thank you for grace and mercy. We pray, Father, for your peace and for your direction. Help us to trust you, to walk in your favor, to go where you want us to go, to be what you want us to be. Use us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 we got prayer partners at the front that will pray with you. I'm going to be in the after party. Go with God. He loves you.